Thank you. And thank you, Laura, um, for that reading. This is the culmination. This sermon today and the sermon the next two Sundays, and you're thinking, we've raked for three weeks. <laughs> but really, it's the culmination of a work that I started here um, before, last year with Isaiah 1. Remember the series on Isaiah that I did? And then Malachi last month. And this is culmination, I think, anyway. <laughs> and does the thing work? I let the guys um, Uh, oh, Kate can't be with us this morning. She's she's away. She and she and the boys are away. She'll be back soon. So the theme this morning is chosen, known, loved. That photograph was taken just yesterday. Kate just happened to be wearing that T-shirt yesterday, <laughs> and I thought, brilliant. I've got a theme. <laughs> anyway. We start off in chapter 9, verse 1. If you can keep your fingers in your Bibles, please. Paul Paul breaks sharply from the theme of hope in chapters 5 to 8 to talk in the first five verses of chapter 9 of his lament for Israel. Thinking of the blessings that are ours through Christ brings him joy. But thinking about Israel brings some tremendous sorrow. In verse 3, he says that he wishes that he himself were accursed for the sake of his people. But listen to this. Um, Jesus, Paul needn't, needn't feel that way because Jesus was a Jew. And Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took our curse on himself. Verse 4 to 5. He lists Israel's privileges in being chosen by God. The adoption to sonship. Theirs is the covenants, the promises, the bloodline of the Messiah. So it makes us think in verse 6, has God's word failed then? Paul answers this in this verse. It's not as though God's word has failed. It's not as though God has failed to keep his promises. Israel's failure to recognize their Messiah isn't God's problem. It isn't God's fault. One of the reasons for Paul's writing this passage is to defend his gospel to the Roman church, to show that it demonstrates the righteousness of God. So, in verse 6, he makes a distinction between a broader ethnic Israel and an narrower spiritual Israel. This is how he, 
he begins to defend his premise. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Verse 7. Just because you're a Jew, you aren't automatically a child of God. Just because you're a human being, you aren't automatically a child of God. Isn't that that weird? Remember, Abraham had two sons. The first was Ishmael. His mother was Hagar. Abraham and Sarah got impatient. They couldn't wait for God to keep his promise. Verse 9. With the child of promise, Isaac was born later, even though Sarah was past childbearing age. Remember, Abraham had two sons. First was Ishmael, his mother was Hagar. Oh, sorry, I'm reading again. I'll read verse 9 again. I'm I'm lost. But the child of promise, um, Isaac, was was born afterwards, even though Sarah was past childbearing age. Being descended from Abraham, physically, is unnecessarily to be his child in a spiritual sense. In this chapter, we'll see Paul progressing through the Old Testament, first with the patriarchs, then with Exodus history, and finally with the prophets, to prove his point that God's word has not failed. And I asked John, especially for that song, and children, today, because it shows that all through history, God is faithful. In verses 10 to 13, Paul moves down one generation to further develop his distinction between an ethnic Israel and a spiritual Israel. God's choice of Jacob over Esau illustrates the absolute freedom of God outlined in verses 7 to 9. Verse 11. This talks of God's purpose in election. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me either. But God doesn't feel the need to explain himself. Remember, God is sovereign. It's not as if he needs creation at all. What about God's choosing the one over the other? God takes the initiative in calling people into covenant with him. Three things. Jacob and Esau shared the same father and mother. This puts paid to the objection that Isaac was preferred over Ishmael simply because they had different mothers. Second, God promised that Jacob would be dominant before the twins were born. So the destinies of the children is governed by God's will. Third, Jacob's being the younger of the two makes it clear that human preferences had nothing to do with God's choice.
participation in the covenant then comes only as a result of God's call. Verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What does it mean love, hated, in, 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 in our sense? It means Jacob I accept as, as into my covenant, but Esau I didn't. And Esau actually went on to become a very rich man and the founder of a nation. So um, it's not as if Esau was um, cursed or anything at all. Verse 14. The next passage is to answer the objections of those who will ask, if God decides apart from anything, if God decides apart from anything in a human being, whom he will choose and whom he will reject, how can he still be righteous? And how can he blame how can he blame people if they reject him? This first question is responded to with scripture references and, and comments. God says to Moses in verse 15, I'll I, I put the slide up in a minute, I would have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll come back to this. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He answers the second in verses 20 to 23, he answers the second question with a series of rhetorical questions of his own. God has mercy on whomever he wants. He hardens whomever he wants. God is free, and his freedom to act in this way is the freedom of the creator towards those whom he has created. Let's pause here. Some people are upset by Paul's arrogant, by, by, by Paul's apparent disregard for human choice and responsibility. But these criticisms may be the result, the product of a false assumption. The assumption that, that God, in his treatment of human beings, must meet our own assumptions, our own 20th, 20, 21st modern logic, 21st century modern logic. But Paul's approach is quite different. He considers his justification of the ways of God in his treatment of people to be just. His approach works if it justifies God's acts against, his, against the standard his, of, of God's revelation in Scripture. Verses 15 to 18. And his character as creator. Verses 20 to 23. The standard by which God is just is nothing more and nothing less than God himself. So in verse 14... What then shall we say? This introduces a defense of his own teaching because the following question holds an accusation. The potential, the potential charge 
that God exhibits unrighteousness and injustice continues the concern in verse 6 to 13 about whether God has violated his own character, his own promises. But Paul simply says, not at all. Verse 15, Paul isn't content simply to reject the notion that God is unrighteous. He will explain why this rejection of that notion is justified. Paul starts his explanation by using scripture to show that God's decision to choose Jacob and Esau was no isolated case, but shows God's own nature. Verses 15 to 17. God's choice isn't based on the good things that you and I may have done, but on mercy. Why did God choose you? Because he is merciful. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. He refers to Old Testament texts to which God himself speaks. Such texts constitute the most important evidence we can have about God's essence and ways of acting. Oh, can I just interrupt myself? And children... Children, their word searches uh, on, on the be- bench there. I'm sorry, I forgot at the beginning. Okay, so, so go and get them, okay? Well, I changed slides, okay? <laughs> Exodus 33. 19b, where Moses asked asked that God show him his glory. Exodus 33, verses 18 to 19. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's against this ultimate standard, not the penultimate standard, of God's covenant with Israel, that God's righteousness must be measured. Do you understand that? The ultimate standard of God's God's greatness, not his subsequent um, covenant with Israel. God's mercy, verse 16, God's mercy does not depend on human willing, but on God himself. Verse 30, Jacob I have loved. Verse 17, for a group to be chosen, there must be a downside. But God, so God, 
These verses speak of the negative side of election. Esau, I rejected. Verse 18. This verse continues the passage from verse 15 17. As God's self righteousness to Moses shows that he freely has mercy on whom he wishes, so his words to Pharaoh show that he, he is at the same time a God who hardens whom he wishes to harden. God's choice to give mercy or to hold it back does not depend on the behavior of either person. Nobody deserves mercy. So there's nothing unjust or inappropriate about God's choice. Verse 19, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Isn't this the question of all questions? It goes like this. If God has mercy on whom he has mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden, how can he be just in judging me if he made me the, if he made me the way I am? And he did make all of us the way we are. There are three reasons for God's patient endurance. Verse 20. In this verse, rebuke on Paul's, Paul's part can be heard. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? It's a rebuke of the creature taking it upon themselves to judge the methods of the creator that Paul implicitly talks against. It's basically the creature saying to the maker, why did you make me like this and not like that? It strikes me that this is the worst kind of jealousy. The worst, the very worst kind. God can do whatever he wants. God owes us nothing. Not mercy, not love, not grace. The love and mercy that God shows us providing for our salvation is something absolutely and completely undeserved. The depths of that kind of love cannot be appreciated until the fact that it's entirely unnecessary on God's part. Verse 22. What if? Is Paul actually saying here that, God's, that God creates people just to send them to hell? No. Whatever God does, it's always righteous. It's always just. And it is always fair because God cannot be otherwise. Malachi 3.16 says, I the Lord do not change. The second part of that verse is, so you, Israel, are not destroyed. But 
But these things are hard to hear. But there are verses in the Bible that balance them out. Genesis 80:25. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? It's a rhetorical question. It means that God, you are just. Abraham asked God this question. Just when God told him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And do you remember Abraham bargaining the, the amount down? Ten to five to just one. Verse 23. God has delayed his judgment on the people he's angry with to display his glorious riches towards us, the objects of his mercy. Paul, in these last three verses, begins to suggest that a remold, the remolding is complete. Potter and the, and the clay. God has called Gentiles to share in his promise. This is the turning point. Object of mercy, then, isn't so much something which receives mercy, but something which God but something through which God brings, brings mercy to others, the riches of his glory. Verse 24. In verses 20 to 23, Paul, Paul is asking question upon question, and it's really, it gets a bit relentless. But verse 24 seems like a pause for breath. Paul is concentrating on the scope of God's calling. God summons Gentiles as well as Jews into relationship with himself. Paul supports this with Old Testament quotations. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust in the scales. He weighs the elements as though they were fine dust. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You know, it's a fact of life. In our fallen world, that people, everybody, faces all sorts of problems, 
throughout life. There's so much rotten stuff that happens to each one of us. And we don't know why. We can never explain. But it, it's, it, life happens. <laughs> um, is our response because we can't, we can't respond any other way. But why does our almighty God let such things happen? We can go back to the verse in Genesis um, 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You have to believe that God is going to do what is right. Or do you know what? You might as well give up. You're either going to believe in the holiness of God or you're not. But if you do suffer such times, there's comfort in the Bible. Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Paul is explaining God's sovereignty. But this verse lets us have a glimpse at God's heart. Again, 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He determines the outcomes of every event in history, all through history, from great to small. In fact, we see him in the Old Testament as the driving force behind history. And God is even sovereign over evil events. It was God who sent his son Jesus to the cross suffusing all of what Paul says in these verses about God's sovereignty in election and coming to the surface explicitly in Romans 9, verses 20 to 24, is this view of a God who acts with absolute freedom towards his creatures. But you know what? He does so out of his great love for us. And you have, to hurt, you have to learn to hold in balance these two elements, the heart of God and the sovereignty of God. I'll come back to that later, it's, that's difficult. But God's heart is expressed ultimately in John 3.16. don't have a slide for this. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In the last part of the chapter, verses 25 to 29, 
Paul puts it back on us. Paul puts, he puts the onus back on us. Quotations from Hosea and Isaiah. It says, I will call them my people. Verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who's not my loved one. And verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called children of the living God. Look at the verses referenced from Isaiah in, 20, in verses 27, 28, and 29. Verse 27. Though the remnant of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, sorry, only, only the remnant shall be saved. Verse 28. For the Lord shall carry out his, his sentence on earth with speed and finality. And this is towards Israel. Verse 29. Remember from Isaiah verse 1. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. That's Isaiah saying to Judah and Israel, Unless God had been merciful to you, you would have been wiped out. But because God has, has promised you, you, you are saved and you will be safe. In verse 30, we who are, we who are for, foreigners to the promise are called to have faith. I deal with the last three verses uh, in verse chapter nine next week because it all ties in together. But I'd just like to sum up the chat, the verse that I that I have read. It's as if in one chapter, Paul has Paul has talked about salvation from God's perspective, and at the end, suddenly salvation comes from our choice to have faith. From God's perspective, he chose you before you were born. That's heaven's point of view. From our point of view, God says, choose Jesus, receive him, believe in him, believe in his finished work on the cross. Both of these views are expressed in the Bible. God's sovereignty and God's love. Both of these perspectives are revealed in this chapter, Romans 9. Our first song today was How Great Thou Art. And I love the way that combines God's greatness. God, the, 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 see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. And then it goes on to Jesus. God is so not sparing. That's God's greatness against God's love. 
and I'd all notice the stuff written down and prayer that's that for a song but and most of you can't see this but what I'm holding up here is a coin okay and two sides heads or tails and stuff but it's one coin it's one thing it's one person okay so the greatness of God is omnipotence omnipresence he is all knowing he is all seeing he's love and what does love stand on it's love all the way down let's pray Lord, you are great, omnipotent, omnipresent. You're all-seeing, all-knowing. And God, you are good. You are love all the way down. May we ever keep in balance these two sides of your great character. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. As we move into the next communion part of our service, let us stand and sing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me.